Welcome to the Roboticist Chronicles, an ARC Specialties podcast, where we get into the nuts and bolts of robots, automation, and the implications of an evolving machine workforce. Well, this is Dan Alford with ARC Specialties. Welcome to the first on-site video and podcast edition of the Roboticist Chronicles here at ARC Specialties. We've got a special guest today, Dave Hevel. Glad to be here. Dave and I have been working together since the late 70s. He's been a mentor for me for many, many years. Now he works at Arc Specialties. We've gotten some positive feedback from some stuff we've been putting out about the criticality of fit-up in welding automation applications. So we thought we'd expand on it today, probably get into a few arguments, and try to explain this whole thing to our audience. So today's episode is all about how important it is to have accurate parts if you're going to automate. Dave, what have you always taught me? I've always said there's three important things, fit up, fit up, and fit up. And if you can't do one of the first three items, you got a problem. (laughs) And this has been a chronic problem in robotics for many, many years. You can trace a whole lot of robotic system failures to bad part fit up. You have to understand the first automation in America was machining. Okay, what's the difference between machining? Why did it work first? Because with machining, you impose your will on the part. You take a part and then you remove everything you don't want. But in welding, the part imposes its will on you. In other words, the shape of the part, we can't change. We just have to deal with it. And so it's a very complex subject. And we're going to try to get into this huge matrix of variables today. We'll do our best but uh, it's, it's a complex subject. That's why Dave and I are tackling this one together. We're gonna hit on uh, three different, four, several different aspects. First is welding process, joint design, which material you're working with, your quality requirements, and your fixturing. And then at the last, we're going to talk about adaptive control because with adaptive control, you can overcome many of these problems. So why are these problems even an issue? Why don't we just use adaptive control on everything? I like to say, add money and stir. It costs money and adds complexity to a job. But we're going to talk about adaptive control because it's a viable technology and it is a good way to solve problems that you have to solve. So back to the top, let's talk about welding processes. Let's divide them into autogenous and filler material first. The definition of autogenous is we simply are melting material. That means we don't have filler material and my point is we don't have any filler material to cover your errors. Would you agree with that? Well, yeah, and uh, fit up means many things to many people. Everybody views that as what is good. It needs to be defined before we get into a project, right? So before we get into these individual items on our list, the first one being welding processes, let's define the problem. And uh, what I see as a major problem when you go into this project is what is good fit up? Good fit up means something different to every person. So before you start, that needs to be defined as what am I talking about in good fit up. So hopefully as we go through the processes, we'll help define that. So fit up to me could be mm-hmm. joint accuracy. So if the joints are misaligned or not straight, that's one thing. And then you have to combine on top of that fixturing accuracy. Because if you don't hold the part accurately or if you don't have any features that you can clamp on that are accurate relative to the joint, then you stack on top of that fixturing accuracy. And then on top of that, you stack robot accuracy. So there's really three levels in my opinion. Right, and that's why it gets so confusing. How do I define that? You know, you gotta figure out which problem to fix. And to do that, you have to figure out which problem you have to start out with. So that's why we're gonna go through this as a series of uh, bullet points with welding processes being the first one. 
Okay. And I'm going to divide that into autogenous versus filler materials. Okay. Because with autogenous, the definition of that is we're simply melting two pieces together. And there's a lot of advantages to that. You don't have to add wire. There's, uh, it, it's kind of the definition of keyhole plasma and such. And you would think that that's what you'd want to do anytime you can. But the problem with that is you don't get that additional filler to cover up your errors. So tell us about autogenous okay. welding and the limits. Okay, uh, let's start with uh, plasma. And we could probably throw TIG in there as well. Oh, absolutely. And arc. And we're talking about thin materials uh, I've always used one-tenth T. T is the thickness of the material. Uh, 11 gauge material is an eighth of an inch. One-tenth of that is what? About 12? 12 thousandths <laughs> of an inch. I love business cards because business cards are typically 10 thou, maybe 11. And I checked this one, it happens to be 11. So for 11 gauge, that's my tolerance right there. What that means is your torch to, to joint position accuracy must be no greater than the thickness of this business card. Right. This is my maximum gap, and this is my maximum high-low on the part, misalignment. And cross-seam alignment. Yeah. And, and so you say, wait a minute, that's too tight. No, that's what we're talking about, <laughs> is this has to be this accurate. If I'm more than that, that's when I have to add filler metal because I have to fill the gap. I want a little bit of metal for reinforcement on the bottom and on the top of the, the weld. If I don't have that, what do I have? A concave weld, I don't have full thickness, or I blow through, I have melt through. So uh, those are the kind of tolerances we're talking about. So some of that's fixturing, some of it's yeah. parts, but I always say one thing you have to worry about when you're doing autogenous welding is you have to have very good cuts. So the two parts have to line up perfectly. If you have a gap between the two parts and we're trying to fuse them together, you can't make metal out of air. So uh, particularly with autogenous welding, right. the first step are accurate cuts. Right. And uh, not everybody's doing sheet metal. So let's jump up to quarter inch material. Quarter inch material, I just doubled it. So what's nice about this business card, there's my quarter inch feeler gauge. <laughs> and uh, so again, Good fit up or wire? So I guess the, the bottom line, you know, the point we're trying to make on autogenous is there's numerous advantages to autogenous. You don't need a wire feeder. You don't have to worry about wire co compatibility. It seems like it's a great way to weld stuff. And we do a lot of autogenous projects, but you have to be aware that it actually makes all of your fit up and joint accuracy requirements tighter, not looser. Right. And that's true for TIG or plasma. Right, both of them. All right. But very few people are doing autogenous well. I just wanted to bring that up just so people would be aware of it. But most processes are filler material-based processes, and the most common is gas metal arc welding. And I would say it's the most forgiving. Yes, I'll agree with that. But let's start at the low end again on uh, gauge thickness material. And uh, let's say I'm welding an outside corner. If I am a, more than a half a wire diameter off to the side, what they, I missed a joint, didn't I? Either direction. If the gap is more than a, a half diameter, it's gonna blow through. Make it holes. And, and it's, a, it's a, a miserable looking cutting process, but it will cut the two parts in half. Everybody thinks pipe and tubing, or let's go pipe, is round. Pipe, not even close. Pipe is not round. So if I have a round hole, and let's say I'm using an 035 diameter wire. If I have more than an 035 gap, the wire is going to shoot right through the gap. 
And then when the gap comes, it closes up, it becomes a cutting process. I think that uh, a half a wire diameter is probably a good max. And that my joint alignment, uh, my gaps have to be less than that uh, half a wire diameter. Well, I'm, I'm gonna go bigger than that. I'm gonna say, if we're doing a 1F fillet, and a 1F fillet means it's positioned so that, you know, it's, it's uh, the perfect position for a joint. So just like, yeah, 1F, like that. With that, I would say on heavy materials with, particularly with flux cord wires or metal cord wires, which is simply a variation on gas metal arc welding, I would say we could go three wire diameters. Well, that's a little bit wide in my opinion, <laughs> but you do mention one good thing. Uh, metal cord wires and flux cord wires have a softer arc. They're a little bushier. They don't penetrate quite as deep and they are more tolerant of uh, poor fit up and gap. But if I'm just hog trough in the weld, you know, I'm pouring metal into it. So yeah, I can be a good wire diameter either side of the joint and I can still make it a decent weld. Indeed, and, and, and even within MIG, uh, sorry to compl complicate the problem even more, but there's different modes of transfer. Uh, short arc is short circuiting transfer. It's a great process, particularly if you have burn through problems. Right. However, it doesn't wet and flow. So if you miss the joint with short circuiting transfer, you'll probably have a non-fusion yeah. defect on the side of the well. Yeah, lack of fusion. So you can switch to spray arc, uh, pulse spray, various other things. And seemingly that would solve all your problems, but it creates other problems, right? Yeah. And to further complicate this, I'm gonna talk about variations in gas metal arc welding. Right. You know, I've already said flux core, metal cord wires, one variation on it, but the original uh, gas metal arc technique was short circuiting transfer. And short circuiting transfer is great on thin materials, it works really well, but by definition, it's very low penetration. Sometimes that's advantageous. Maybe you have a burn through problem, mm -hmm. then short circuiting is the way to go. But if you miss a joint with something that has low penetration, like short circuiting arc transfer, you'll probably have lack of fusion defects on the edges of your weld. So we have other modifications of the process. We have spray arc and we have pulse spray. And these are hotter processes. Uh, they solve some of these problems, but they create others, don't they? Yes, and uh, originally we had the spray arc. And uh, spray arc is a very hot process, long arc, very fluid puddle. So if I don't have good fit up, I'm gonna have burn through. Molten metal still runs downhill, doesn't it? Indeed. It uh, has to be in the flat position. Uh, flux core is wonderful. You crank it up and you can get high deposition rates, good penetration, an advantage with the slag covering, uh, more tolerant, rusted. Which becomes down. a disadvantage on a multi-pass one. A multi-pass, I gotta stop and clean it off. And uh, pulse spray, Again, it's hotter than short arc, but it's colder than true spray arc. So it's kind of in the middle. So you can Good work what out of position. You're no right. longer limited to flat, right. which is a critical thing. If you're going to have to weld a few features other than flat, uh, can't do it with spray right. arc. You'll yeah. have to switch to pulse spray. Right, and uh, I'm out of position. That's where flux core is beautiful on heavy material. I can run it out of position at a higher deposition rate than say short arc. Out of position. But you have flux to deal with. You know, we get to sell a second robot just to chip the flux. I'm all in. But, you know, if, if you have that issue or if you're welding around something, you're actually having to get back to where you're welding over that slag that you right. created at the beginning right. of the weld. And that's where metal core. Metal core is a great thing. It, it fills in that gap because I don't have to do 
uh, inner pass cleaning uh, after every pass. So if metal core solves all these problems, why not? Why doesn't everyone use it? Well, first is price. Right, it's gonna be uh, much more expensive. Because but, it's a fabricated wire. Right, yeah, I have to make it, but it has some advantages. I can tailor the chemistry, higher deposition rates. So even though the product costs more, it might actually be cheaper to make a well-finished weld. And higher current density because the arc is actually transmitted through the sheath of the wire right. only. And so that higher current density makes it wet and flow, but with the metal core, you increase your deposition rate. So it's it, it allow, yeah. I've solved problems on other people's projects where we've simply changed to a metal cord wire right. and it's made it much more tolerant of, right. of parts. Yeah, but there's also an issue of hydrogen, right? Right, right. And most of the wires do have a seam in them. So if they're exposed, particularly here on the Gulf Coast, uh, where we have hot and cold, we end up having uh, hydrogen pickup in the wire. Not an issue if you're, you don't have a hydrogen sensitive right. steel, but something you need to keep in the back of your mind. Right. So let's talk about gas tungsten arc welding or TIG. You know, it has a reputation of being a very high quality welding process. Uh, and so frequently if you have tight acceptance criteria, you'll go to TIG welding. But the downside of TIG welding is that it has a relatively below deposition rate, but we have tricks for that, right? Right, and uh, we always think of TIG being hand and adding filler by hand. And Wrong. <laughs> we don't do that. We can do a cold wire, plus automatic wire feed, but the wire is pulling heat out of that puddle. So to overcome that, we use hot wire. And in hot wire welding, where the wire is introduced at the trailing edge of the puddle, uh, its own separate power source. And so we can go, you know, eight, 10 pounds an hour. And so we have TIG quality at almost MIG deposition rates. Another advantage of the hot wire uh, most wires have drawing lube on them. Well, since we're preheating the wire, it burns that lube off and uh, actually is removing hydrogen from the well. So we have very high quality wells with reasonable deposition rates. So once again, why doesn't everybody TIG weld? You know, we've overcome the deposition issue. Well, one of the big problems is you always have to feed the wire into either the front or the back of the puddle, depending on whether you're running hot or cold wire. And so that means you have to devote an axis of your automatic machine to rotating that wire feeder yeah. so it always stays in the correct orientation, either front or back. Typically front if you're running cold wire, back if you're running hot wire. I have to control it right. in the direction of travel. So you may have to dedicate an axis just to that. And I think maybe one of the other problems with TIG is the uh, tungsten contamination issue. And when we talk about plasma, that's one of the advantages of plasma. But TIG, anytime you contaminate the tungsten, either with filler material or base material or oxidation, you have to stop, you have to dress the electrode uh, because otherwise the shape of your arc is such a critical variable and it will compromise your weld quality. Right. Then when you put the torch back together, make sure you set the tungsten the right length and uh, it's just orientation and alignment can be an issue. It's still a viable process. We have hundreds of these hot wire TIG welding systems running around the world. And, and uh, typically people will go with TIG if they have extremely high quality requirements. And so it's still a viable process. But, you know, Dave says to get it up to speed, we have to have a secondary power supply. Once again, you have to have money in stir to fix the shortcomings of the process. Still a viable process, leave it in your matrix, you may need it. So let's right. talk about plasma. One of the things I complained about TIG was, or, or gas tungsten arc, was the tungsten contamination. 
And with plasma, that's not an issue, right? Right. Plasma solves that problem because now the electrode is up above the, the nozzle. It's up inside the torch so that I can't accidentally put the wire on the tungsten, uh, even if there's some surface contamination. It's outside the torch. And so the electrode is going to stay much cleaner. And so with plasma, uh, you also have a collimated arcs, which means the torch to workpiece distance is less critical. And so one of the variations of, of all the welding process is keyhole plasma. And it's, it's kind of a combination of cutting and welding, in my opinion, where you punch a hole through two pieces of, of metal right at the intersection of the two. And then behind that hole that you cut, so to speak, with plasma, it heals. It forms a well behind it. It's called keyhole. And I've welded up to a quarter of an inch with keyhole. What's, what's your limits, Dave? Well, three three eighths in a, in a single pass. Above that, uh, you can keyhole a root pass and then just do a fill on top uh, on top of it uh, to cap it off. So once again, why doesn't everybody simply keyhole everything? Because you have to have extremely accurate parts before you start. We were. Uh, we've we've been in on um, uh, consulting on some of these jobs, and and it's almost always spit up. That's the defect right. on keyhole plasma. And, and keyhole plasma, if you have a little gap, you know, as the torch advances, you're melting that leading edge. It flows around and closes the keyhole behind you. If the gap is too great, it, again, it becomes a cutting process. It just runs out the bottom, and, and so fit up is the the key item. Uh, something else that I'll throw a negative in, okay? Good. Again, you've got a, a, a pilot arc power supply, the main arc power supply. I have and shielding gas, plasma. I should say the uh, arc gas. Yeah, multiple gas yeah. supplies, multiple. And there's a whole I, bunch of parameters that you have to control got, accurately. Yeah, and so I got two or three flow meters. This whole system becomes more complex. And add money and stir. You're paying for multiple right. power supplies. And it gets yeah. even worse if you're having to heal the keyhole, as Dave was yeah. talking about, if you're welding pipe. And the easy way to do keyhole is you start at one end on a runoff tab, finish on a runoff tab, and you throw those away. Right. But if you don't have that luxury, it's a tough process. Right. When you get 360, now I have to close the keyhole, so I have to downslope the gas and current to close it up. More controls, that's what we like right, to say, right. but you know, it adds cost to a system. Right. Oh, I got an operator. I got to train him now, and he has to understand the process. It's a great process. Keep it on your list, but be aware of the limitations. Uh, it's, it's, that's when you have to have the best parts. So let's talk about silver. Dave and I are old, and so we, we, uh, yes. we embrace the older welding processes, and subarc is 100 years old yet? Yeah, yeah, it's there. I'm not quite that old. Yeah, yeah, you're not, but the yeah, process is. Right. And a lot of people consider it to be an antiquated process. I don't, because submerged arc welding is the highest deposition, one of the lowest defect rates, and to boot, it has no smoke and no arc. What's not to love? Right, I love it, because uh, it gets, gets away from that arc. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the, the, the disadvantage is I have to handle the flux. The new flux, I got to pour it in the hopper. I got to uh, vacuum it up after I've welded and uh, dispose of the slag. So that I see as the negative. And um, if, if you have a hydrogen sensitive material, that flux is a huge source yeah. of hydrogen for moisture pickup in the right. flux. So you have to bake the flux between right. uses and some critical operations. I have to follow the hydrogen pr good practices. Mm -hmm. 
but it gives me the highest deposition rate of any of the welding processes. And as I mentioned earlier, molten metal runs downhill. So I'm pretty much limited to the flat and the horizontal position. So I have to be able to position my part as well. Which, which here at Arc Specialties, we like that. That just means we take advanced motion control and we're able to uh, use submerged arc welding to weld parts that people never considered in the past because we have to coordinate the motion of both the robot and the part so that the part is always flat. So we overcome that limitation. And this podcast is about fit up, right? And so the reason we're talking about subarc, it's one of the most tolerant processes. You have a large weld puddle, which covers a world of sins. So I'm gonna say, uh, and the wire diameters are larger. If we're measuring everything in wire diameters, Dave, then that means our tolerances are higher. So I think we've welded with wires as large as 3 sixteenths of an inch in our right. past. Right. So that means if even if you have one wire diameter tolerance and you easily do on most submerged arc joints, then, then you're up into significant fractions of an inch on tolerance of misalignment. Some applications that come to mind on a two-run weld, like in pipe welding, longitudinal weld or a spiral pipe, you might be running two and three wires at a high speed. Multiple arcs. Multiple. There, you have to keep the wires within a half a wire diameter of alignment. If you get to a half a wire diameter out of alignment, it's going to undercut on one side of the weld. Interesting. All right. So it's very critical that two, three, four wires, whatever you're running, that they are in alignment. Now, it's a much larger puddle, bigger arc. Off-seam is, is not as critical. But again, on a two-run weld where it's a square butt joint, if I get off-seam, I'm going to have lack of penetration. So, yeah, I need to still keep it within a half a wire diameter, but I'm running 532 diameter, not an 035 wire. Much bigger wires. Yes. This and, looks more like round stock. Right. And then if I am doing a, a, a narrow groove, I normally run the wire, one wire diameter off of that sidewall. You're talking about split beads if you have a, a, yeah, a yes. multi-bead uh, layer. Yes. I'll be doing a, a split bead. And uh, that one wire diameter, obviously, if I go from a 332 to a 532 wire, I have a much bigger window. But if I am, let's say, a half wire diameter too close to the sidewall, it's going to wash up on that sidewall. If I'm too far away from the sidewall, the bead's going to roll over and I can trap slag. Like a fusion defect. And uh, down in that groove, and the welder says, oh, no problem. I'll burn it down in the Never next did. pass. <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, you got to watch that one. You still have limits, but if I'm just multi-pass welding, uh, stacking the beads in, it's much more forgiving. It's a wonderful process. Just because it's 100 years old, it's still very viable. We're doing a whole lot of submerged arc automation. It lends itself to advanced motion control because as long as you can maintain the part in the flat position, then you can run with subarc and you get all the advantages of the process. Why don't we do everything with subarc? Uh, all the disadvantages we talked about, the flux, the, the equipment. Uh, also, you have to have parts that are sufficiently thick to tolerate this right. much heat. What's, what, what's the highest current you run on subarc today? Mm, uh, up close to, uh, you know, 15 to 1800 amps on a single wire. But let's say you're running three wires, uh, you might have 1,500 amps lead, 1,200 in the middle, and six, seven on the trail. So you can throw a, a few thousand amps into a puddle. And 
for those of you who aren't familiar with the, the, the values we're talking here, with gas metal arc welding, we might be running down at 90, 90 <laughs> uh, amps, right? Right, and uh, or up to 300, 350 amps. But the, you know, anything over 1,000, that's pretty much the domain of, of submerged right. arc only. Right, and uh, high current densities and you know, high deposition rates. So you can imagine with a bead that's an inch wide, you can miss the joint. It's just the opposite of electron beam or laser welding, for example, where the bead is very narrow on the order of you know, a few thousandths of an inch. So that's that's where sub-arc gains its advantages. It's a big bead, but. All right. All right, so we didn't really answer any questions. We just yeah. gave you a whole lot of things to think about and process, but I would say the second most important thing to consider is joint design. I'm going to say that a 1F fillet is the best and an outside corner joint is the most challenging. I'll agree that uh, a 1F fillet is the easiest to make. Lap joints are easy. Correct. Uh, light gauge outside corner uh, is difficult. Fit up has to be good. A lot of people want to do the root pass, let's say on pipe. On full penetration. Full penetration. And... Uh, the definition, let's define full penetration. Yeah. So that's where you make a weld from one side of the part, but you're expecting to have a good weld on the opposing side, which you can't even see. And this is obviously what you have to do on pipe welding. You weld from the outside, but we want to see a good weld on the inside. That's full pin. Right, and uh, an open route is probably the most difficult, and that's where you see a lot of gas metal arc welding. If you're welding it by hand, the operator can look at the puddle, he can control his travel speed and his weave, and so he can put that root pass in. But when we go to automation, uh-oh, the machine can't see. Without adaptive control, Without, which is our right. last topic. But. Right, so we're gonna skip that part. But uh, you can do it, let's say with TIG, and then in TIG welding on a full pin on the root pass, you can use a V-joint, but now alignment becomes very critical Put some numbers on it, Dave. For for full automatic uh, open root TIG, what's the, what are the limits on variation in joint gap? Oh man, you shouldn't do that to me. I'm going to say the, thirty thousandths of an yeah. inch. But, Argue with me. Well, if I have to do that, know what I join? I want a J prep. I want a J prep because now my thirty thou is probably good. Right, so I understand, I, and, and, and for my whole career, I have refused to automate VBO wells until last year when uh, a combination of technologies created a perfect storm. That's collaborative robots, laser right. tracking, and advanced waveforms. But without those, you know, the first right. half of our talk is about how we're going to do this without right. it. So I'm going to say 30 thousandths gap, 30 thousandths high low. And a J prep. You're good. In other words, you don't want to do a VBO weld without. Yeah. Full penetration B, but well, you won't do it without some form of adaptive control. Well, or seam tracking to right. keep it in the joint. People will come to us and ask us to do full penetration pipe welding, but and they'll claim that their parts are accurate, but our experience yeah. has been they really aren't. No. So we're going to say that uh, even if Dan says we'll handle 30 thousandths of an inch high low, 30 thousandths gap, we don't want the job because yeah. in the real world, you can't maintain these right. tolerances. Right. And when we've asked for samples, guess what? The samples come in and uh, they vary so much that it's just not successful 100% of the time. So we're going to say the, the, the 11 to zero on this one because <laughs> we, in our experience, you simply can't get joints good enough to weld them blind. And that is for the robot to weld them without some sort of sensor system. Right. So full pin, very tight constraints for us right. today. 
I'll agree with Dave. Uh, lap joints are one of my favorites, uh, and you it were quite they're quite tolerant of misalignment. I'm going to give them you know at least a wire diameter uh, for most of these processes or, or more. And I've had one interesting thing that I've experienced and uh, worked on some systems where they're doing lap joints, but what they did is they didn't force us to weld to the ends. And that's another thing that really helps. If you don't need welds all the way to the sides, to the corners, to the edges, much increases our tolerance for part variation. Right. And uh, particularly on the crater end of it, if you need to go all the way to the edge, you know, you're going to have to go to the edge and then crater fill a back step, something to fill that up so that I have a full size weld. So I guess uh, if you want to keep a, a rule in your mind, uh, seal wells, as they call them in industry, wells that go all the way around a joint are tougher and they increase the need for better parts. Right. So joint design is a huge problem and frequently you can affect your solution by changing your joint design. So keep that in mind. But let's talk about materials now. Uh, in the ascending order of difficulty, I'm going to say mild steel followed by aluminum, followed by high string glue alloys, followed by exotics. That includes stainless and nickel alloys. Mild steel is the most forgiving. Why? Well, partially because of familiarity. So many people know how to weld mild steel. And so, uh, you know, in your shop, they probably understand how it works. And therefore, it makes the whole thing more tolerant. Yeah, carbon steel is, what, 90% of the market. That's plain Not vanilla. Everybody welds it. Thank goodness. It's very forgiving. It makes it more tolerant of uh, joint misalignment, so not much to say on that uh, other than if you can build it out of mild steel, you should. And I, I guess that's a good point. Remember we had that one project, Dave, where the customer wanted to make all the parts out of 4130 because they thought that was race bar material and they thought it was cool, even though they were making uh, parts for sewage plants. Yeah. And, and the best thing we did for those guys is question their material selection because had they stuck with the 4130, the chromoly alloy steels, they were actually welding them to mild steel parts anyway, so there was no strength advantage, but they're going to introduce huge problems in the form of hydrogen embrittlement and such. So I guess the moral of this story is if you can weld it out, can build your part out of mild steel, please do so. Right, make it out of weldable material. <laughs> Why not? And, and uh, you don't have to worry about preheat, interpass temperature. You don't have to worry about post-weld heat treat. Anyway, well, we're getting off of our joint well, it's, I'm, I'm just saying that mild steel is more tolerant of joint misalignment right. because you can throw a little more heat at it. Uh, right. So next up, this the chart would be aluminum, partially because it's harder to weld. And I'm going to give you an example of where joints would cause problems. For example, if you had a uh, excessive root opening, I, I don't know if I could quantify it, maybe one wire diameter, but the uh, enemy of aluminum is oxygen. And if you have a root opening, that means we're going to get some oxygen in from the backside of the weld. Just another way that fit-up causes problems. Right. And uh, joint cleanliness is, is critical. And so, again, that's oxides. Yeah, and so if your parts are, are prepared with uh, plasma cutting, for example, the cuts are probably more oxidized than if they were machined. So not only do you need accurate parts for the joint weld, but you need good surface finish on the joints to prevent uh, contamination, right. mostly oxides, from becoming a problem. Yeah. You got to remove all of that oxide before welding. I don't know. Next up, my list was high strength, low alloy materials. Okay, and well, can we throw stainless and uh, sure, and canals, all, all those alloys? And there, most of them flow and wet very nicely, but 
shielding gas on the backside is critical now. I have to uh, run an inert gas on the backside of the weld. Particularly if you have variable root openings. Right, and uh, if you've got a gap, well, even without a gap, you're still melting the metal on a full pin weld. Correct. And uh, it's going to oxidize on the backside. Welders call it sugaring. <laughs> it's going to turn black. And uh, so anyways, it, I think that's the main thing there. Again, the same rules, whether it's TIG or MIG apply on uh, joint alignment gap, uh, those rules didn't really change that much. You know, I, I put high strength, low alloy materials in there, and that's that's the 4130s right. and uh, you know the hardenable materials. And I, the reason I think that those make uh, joint fit up more critical is because you can't cover them by simply putting a hotter, larger weld puddle in there without degrading mechanical properties. So that that was the point I wanted to make. You're talking about heat input. Heat input, right. kilojoules per inch. Right. You got to maintain that and you just can't slow down and pour the metal in and expect the results to be the same. Right, you have grain growth issues, you have heat affected zone issues. So it's not so much that high strength low alloy is harder to weld, but uh, we have tighter constraints on our heat input. You got more rules to follow. You got more rules to follow yeah. and you can't cheat by throwing a big weld at it. Right. And then the worst, in my opinion, are the exotics, the titanium, the zirconium, things like that. Probably because typically those are higher value items. Yeah, but they're reactive. They're more reactive. So, so oxygen and hydrogen are bad actors. So I, again, shielding is, is critical. Titanium is actually easy to weld. Very easy to weld. <laughs> you just have to shield it. But I would say that these are high value items, they have, which typically means they have higher quality requirements. Right. And because of that, uh, I'm going to say that it requires tighter joint constraints right. than some of the other alloys. Right. You don't want to mess up. No, no, it's, <laughs> it's too costly to mess up. You can't right. throw it away. What's a uh, mild steel still around 50 cents a pound, and some of these exotic alloys are up in the, I don't know, 50 bucks a pound what? or more. We had a roll of zirconium wire that was $100 a pound. Mm. Take care so, of that. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. And this all leads us into the next uh, set of issues, which are quality requirements. Once again, if, if you're looking for full penetration welds, that's a lot tougher. And I would say yeah. your joint requirements are going to be a whole lot harder than if you just want to do a lap weld, which I think is our favorite. Right. And the uh, more difficult it is, uh, usually the higher the restraints. Yeah, and how are you going to inspect this thing? Yeah. If it's purely a visible visual inspection, that's one thing. But if we're going to have to x-ray, that means the well quality requirements are much stiffer. Maybe we'll run ultrasonics, uh, eddy current, you know, any of these NDT techniques means that we need a better weld. And so to get a better weld, you know, we keep saying one of the critical things you have to deal with is fit up, fit up, and fit up. what's the third one? Yeah, fit, fit up, fit up. up. Yeah, that was it. And so I'm going to say quality requirements really play into how good a joint you need to make because it has a direct effect on your final workpiece. Right. So we're down to my last topic, and that's fixturing. And I want to bring this up because even if you have the best parts in the world, if you don't position them accurately relative to your robot, then um, you, you failed. And so... To do that, you need something to grip on. And whatever you're gripping on must be accurate relative to your joint. So the perfect part would have a series of holes drilled very precisely relative to your weld joint so you could put dowel pins in there. Well, I don't think we've That's ever had that. practical. <laughs> Never had it, but uh, the point of the story is you need to be able to fixture the part accurately uh, 
with the same acceptance criteria, you know, depending on all the other variables we talked about here. But if it's plus or minus two wire diameters, one wire diameter, your fixturing has to be that extra also. You know, people come and ask about particular application, how much is this going to cost me? And I don't think they understand that fixturing can cost many times more than the robot and the welding equipment. And they're not prepared for that. But if you can't fixture the part, you can't weld it. And fixturing has to do a couple of things. We're not only positioning the part relative to the robot, but frequently having to hold it in place. We're resisting distortion. We're doing that for a couple of reasons. If the part distorts while you're welding, then you don't know where it is anymore. And also, if it distorts during welding, you've created a distorted part. So the fixture has multiple uh, jobs to do. Hold the part in place, pre prevent any motion, and so why don't we fixture everything accurately? Well, sometimes you don't have any good parts, anything to clamp on. You know, you gotta have something to hold if you're going to fixture. And these fixtures, as Dave said, they may be uh, more expensive than the cost of the rest of the system. And I'm gonna throw out another one. These, all these clamps get in the way. Right. And uh, a whole lot of robot crashes, or robots crashing into fixture right. clamps. You have to weld around all those clamps. Right, and the robot doesn't know that you forgot to, to raise the clamp. Of course, there's ways around that. We're happy to put sensors on these fixture clamps so that the robot does know if they're down or up, or the robot can move them up out of the way. But once again, you have to add money and stir. How do I, uh, let's say, I don't have a perfect part. How do I get around that? Sometimes you can move it into shape. One of my favorite projects we ever did was the pallet rack machine. If you can go way back into your archives. That's way back. And these parts were atrocious. They were sheet metal. Uh, they wanted to weld very fast. There's a whole lot of bad things on this project, but the thing that it, that dawned on us finally was, since they were sheet metal, you could bend them into shape. And so our concept was, we would never get the entire part accurate, but we didn't really care, and neither did the customer. All we cared about was knowing where the weld joint was, so we simply clamped that portion of the part in real time using rollers. And so we knew where just a couple of inches of that part was accurately, and that's all we cared about. And so sometimes the fixture can overcome defects in the part. And so this thing would, would actually feed the part through. So that was, a, that was a great application where fixturing solved all of their positional accuracy issues. Right. Another one of my fond memories was, uh, you recall that machine that was welding longitudinal seams on the thin wall pipe for thread protectors. And that was an interesting project because uh, the, part, the, the cut lines are fairly straight. They're cut in a shear, which is good. But we had to get the two pieces accurate relative to each other. And this was a good example of uh, where we're able to actually fixture directly onto the well surfaces. You know, I keep harping on the fact we need features that are accurate relative to the well surface. There's nothing better than the well surface itself. And so on a seaming machine, you drop a, you drop a knife blade in, you butt the part up against it. Now we know exactly where the right side of the seam is. You clamp it in place, you retract the knife, and then you butt the second side up against the first side. So I thought that was novel because we used the right side of the part to fixture the left side of the part. And we were able to get full penetration joints on square butt welds using gas metal arc welding with pretty mediocre part quality. But by changing how we fixtured it, we overcame all these problems. And we were always on right out on the center of the seam, every weld, mm -hmm. repeatable. If you can fixture <clears throat> directly off of your joints, that, that's a wonderful thing. Yeah. But that, that's, there aren't a lot of examples in my career no. I've been able to do that. No. 
that, that covers all of the, the variables that we want to talk about on how to control and variables to worry about when you're talking about fit up. But there's a whole nother world out there and that's adaptive control. And with adaptive control, you can overcome a great many of these problems. Again, why doesn't everybody do it? Well, it adds complexity and it adds cost. But you know, since we're on the subject of fixturing, uh, we've got a pretty neat system going in right now, which requires absolutely no fixturing. So uh, maybe we'll start on the uh, extreme end of adaptive control and talk about 3D vision at, at, at first. We're able to drop the part directly in front of the robot. It identifies the uh, part's position uh, with six degrees of freedom, XYZ, y'all pitch and roll, no matter where you position it. And from that 3D vision data, wells the part. And that's, that's pretty amazing. Yeah. And so that, that not only eliminates the fixturing, it compensates for part yeah. variation. It's an amazing process, yeah. but even that one's not good enough to completely handle it because uh, for the final orientation, we're using touch word. Right. And, uh, you know, if you step back, if I don't know where the part is, I got vision, I got lasers, but the touch, I can touch the part and find that the problem is that takes time. And how many people want a cycle time? How can I do a fat? Oh, you're slowing me down. We get a lot of pushback on touch work, yeah. but the beauty of touch work is we, yeah. we superimpose a small electrical signal on the wire. And so when that wire touches the workpiece, uh, since they're both conductive, we know exactly where it is. And this eliminates those other variables that we haven't really talked about, which is robot accuracy right. and repeatability. And so if the robot touches with the wire, there's no sensor to, to wire error because the wire is the sensor. sensor. And so I've got a lot of folks that refuse to tolerate the additional cycle time that you get from touch work, but it's uh, even with our most sophisticated 3D-based vision system, touch work gives us that final orientation. Okay, so I know where to start the weld. How do I know if it moved a little bit? Okay. Well, we kind of we start out with the most complicated one. Let's go. Let's go back to the first. Okay. I'm going to say the simplest, most proven, uh, and easiest to apply and cheapest uh, adaptive control feature would be arc length control. Now, this only works on constant current applications. That would be gas tungsten arc welding and uh, plasma arc welding. But if you monitor the arc voltage in real time, you can determine how far the torch is away from the workpiece and then servo around that voltage. Real simple algorithm, I can write that code in 10 lines. And so if you simply have a vertical error on your part, arc voltage control is a superb and proven and easy way to do it. How do I track a fillet weld though? Well, see, now you're talking, uh, you, need, you want to do cross seam. Right. Okay, well, you can actually use that same technology. You can monitor current and voltage. And if you oscillate, you should see changes in current or voltage, depending on your process, based upon how far away you are from the right. wall. And you can set that up so it will center the torch automatically. That's called right. through, through the arc the, tracking. Through the arc tracking. And uh, so once I touch start and I find this, the start point through the arc tracking, I can track the seam while I'm welding. In real time. Right. The alternative is if you have good fixturing and you do touch work on the two ends, then you're great. But if you want to deal with distortion in right. real time because you didn't bother to build a good fixture, then yes, you would need some form of through the arc tracking, which once again is, is more costly and more complex than 
simple through the arc or I mean simple arc voltage right. control or touch work. And I know when people have come and you ask them, well, how do you close up the gap in the joint, say a light material? And they say, well, we hit it with a hammer and tack it. Oh. <clears throat> okay, so now I have a, a joint that's crooked. That would take through the arc tracking if, if I have something to track. Yeah, and that's, it's a good technology because I like it because the sensor is the wire. Right. And that's elegant for two different reasons. Uh, one, you can never have a sensor to wire misalignment issue because they're the same thing. Mm -hmm. And the second thing is you don't have to buy a sensor and the sensors add bulk to a project. For example, if you're welding up against something, you really don't have room for an outboard sensor, then uh, through the arc offers some advantages there. Right. Okay. But if you need a more sophisticated tracking system, then you're, you're stepping into 2D lasers. This is something that's gotten to be a fairly mature technology. Uh, oddly enough, it seemed to have been developed mostly in Canada couple, three country companies up there that are doing very good stuff with 2D lasers. And with a 2D laser, that's positioned ahead of the welding torch. And in real time, it'll be measuring the joint position in uh, two dimensions, uh, Z and cross seam. And it can automatically position the torch behind the sensor. And, uh, but all of those take time and money, right? And money and additional equipment and it's bulky. And sometimes it's the way to go, but you have to you have to need the technology to justify the right. technology. Speaking of the technology, how do I make all of that work? Can, is that something a welder can do? Uh, it depends on your integrator. <laughs> if, if if you get it down to a point where you know they just press the go button, certainly you know right. it, it needs to be seamless like that, or you need to increase the uh, technical competency of your shop. You have to have a programmer. You may have to have a programmer. Now, there, once again, there's exceptions to every rule, and uh, we've, we've come up with a pretty cool B-butt pipe welder, okay? And there had to be three technologies that happened mm -hmm. to mature at the same time. That is 2D laser stripe tracking, collaborative robots, because in a pipe welding uh, in facility, you're going to be working very close to that robot, so the robot has to be kinder, gentler, and not dangerous. And the third one is some of these advanced waveforms that the welding companies are providing for a gas metal arc welding, which allow you to bridge large gaps, because that's what we're trying to do, right? Is, right, is compensate for gap variation at high-low on a V-butt weld, which uh, earlier I mentioned we've refused right. to do for many, many years, but now we're tackling so we this. we can do it. So the way we're doing it though, and I, and I really like this robot because it has zero programming. So I'm gonna say on the low end, Dave, the, the technical, technical competence you need is zero because this thing will find the joint, map the joint, create the part program optimized for that variable joint and then make that weld. Yeah, all the technology was built into it, so you don't have to know how to do it. All right, but add money and start. But right. you know, you have have additional complexity. Plus, we're pre-scanning the joint beforehand, right. and this would not compensate for uh, real-time distortion, would it? But on pipe welding, that's not an issue. So um, it's not moving. It's not moving. Right. You know, it's 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 fixtured well. Right. So that's that's a great one. Two D laser is is a pretty neat process. And I guess the last technology in between there is uh, 2D vision. And a lot of the robot companies are doing a great job with 2D vision. So two-dimensional, that means we know everything except the distance to the part. But we know the position of that part in X, Y. And frequently, that's all you need, particularly if you have a datum surface in the form of a fixture platen. So that works pretty well. 
So here we go. We just went through real quickly six different technologies. Which one's the best? It depends on your application. It depends on your application. Depends yeah. on your parts and depends on what we're trying to compensate for. If you could go rewind all the way back to the top and simply give us good parts that you fixtured well, then you don't need Boy, any of this. Life would be easy, wouldn't it? Well, then, then <laughs> we wouldn't have a job, though. Right. So adaptive control, wonderful stuff. Uh, the new sensors that are coming online uh, are, are just amazing. We're having a whole lot of fun with it. Uh, and our goal is to make it so that you can use these adaptive functions without complicating your system. We did a fine job on the pipe welder. Right. What we're doing is taking a lot of consumer sensors and then reapplying it to robotics because once the consumers use them, the price goes down, familiarity goes up. But we still haven't changed the, the three variables, have we? Uh, fit, up, fit up and fit and up and fit, fit up. up. Right. So those are the most important thing. And uh, if you can't make good fit up, now we have to spend money to try to compensate. And we can't solve all problems either. Yeah. You know, or, or they may not be economically solved yeah. with this stuff. Yeah. So you don't want to throw 3D vision on everything. Yeah. That, that adds a lot of cost to the system. When people answer my questions with, it depends, I hate that answer. But I'm afraid that's what we're going to have to leave you with today. How critical is my fit up? It depends. It depends on what your welding process, whether it's autogenous or not. It depends on your joint design. It depends on your material selection. It depends on your quality requirements. And it depends on the quality of your fixturing or if you even have any fixturing. So these are, I've got some, we've thrown out a bunch of stuff for you to think about today on your project. But the reality is, you know, even though Dave and I've been doing this since the 70s, we don't know it all. So uh, our solution to this is, we test in the lab. If you give us a call and, and throw out your design, we'll give you one of three answers. Yes, no, or maybe. And if the answer is maybe, then that's when we throw it on Dave in the laboratory. Send us some parts and we'll see <laughs> what we can do. All right, and, and they have to be representative too. Right. You know, a lot of people will send us only the good stuff. Ah, oh, we've no. had that problem before. Right. And then when we get into actual production, it turns out, oh, they weren't even close. But that's why we have a, a whole laboratory here, and Dave has a team working with him, and we try to determine what the simplest solution may be. Yeah, can we weld it? Right. And and we'll tell you, yes or no. And the first thing we'll try is a robot welding without sensors. This is your cheapest, fastest solution, but it's very dependent upon all the variables we described. And if that fails, then we may change the welding process, may improve your fixturing, uh, may actually ask you to change your quality requirements, uh, mm -hmm. or we start to throw adaptive control at it. So what's the? how do we quantify fit-up? It depends. Well, I hope that was some benefit to you today. Uh, Dave and I are throwing everything we know at it, and we've got two careers invested in this, this thing, and we still don't know all the answers. But if this was useful to you, uh, we have a lot of other uh, technology available to you. Go to our website. We have a lot of white papers that Dave writes uh, on the results of his testing. We have the Roboticist Chronicles podcast and a lot of videos on YouTube. We're here to help. Our specialty thrives on problems. Send us yours. <laughs>